Uh, today we have the privilege of having a guest speaker. Um, Pastor Dave Swain from High Rock Church is here. And just as an introduction, he's here to launch us off into this new sermon series. And again, he's talking about emotional unhealth. And today's scripture is uh, 1 Samuel 15. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. 1 Samuel 15, starting from verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel, opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go strike Amalek and devote destruction, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And skipping down to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as shore, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the, and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not f- performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told, it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Skipping down to verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return to you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And lastly, verse 30. And then, he's, and then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow down bow before the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, give Pastor Dave a round of applause as he comes up. Hey, all good morning. I really am delighted to be with you here today. Uh, You know, it's a a special privilege for me to be at this particular congregation. Uh, You may not know that we actually have a a, a really rich relationship together that goes beyond my friendship with your current pastors and even before my friendship with your previous pastor, Eugene Lee. See, more than friends, our, our congregations are family. We were both birthed around the same time out of St. John's Church in Lexington, and now we share the same mission and the same heart and and, and the same Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of that makes it especially meaningful for me to be here with you this morning. Well, this week I get to introduce your new sermon series called emotionally healthy spirituality. And I, I thought how ironic it was that, hey, we're going to start talking about emotionally health, unhealth, emotional unhealth, or spiritual unhealth. Who should we call? Dave, right? I, I hope that really wasn't it. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm just very passionate about this kind of stuff. 
Uh, and, and so we're going to talk about emotionally healthy spirituality. And to some people, I realize even that phrase just sounds silly and you know, kind of self-helpy. But, but the kind of spirituality that gets deeper than doctrinal positions to transform hearts and attitudes and fears and motives is real spirituality that we need more of. It's the kind of spirituality that I need more of. Two years ago, as Hojin started to tell a little bit about, my wife and I abruptly adopted four children from Africa who'd been orphaned by a brutal tragedy, and, and that would have been complicated for anyone, but we'd already adopted seven other kids previously. As the result, as a result, the last two years have been amazing in many ways. Really, tons of fun, incredible stories and memories, but it's also been very draining, and it's taken a toll on my spiritual life. It's been possible to, you know, keep on preaching while feeling tired and dry on the inside. That's inevitable in certain seasons, but it's gotten to the point where I'm concerned. Because for me, my biggest fear in ministry is not having people dislike my sermons or, or dislike me. I've obviously had to get used to both of those things. It, my biggest fear is more personal. It, it comes out of my own past. When I was first exploring faith in a serious way, I, I was a teenager uh, attending a, a large evangelical church that was built around the charisma of our senior pastor. He was revered like a rock star. And, and, you know, we, we watched him perform on stage and he relished our, our admiration. His face graced national magazines. His books were bestsellers. And he, he spoke to important people in politics and, and business and sports whose names he dropped with you know, the perfect degree of indifference to suggest he spent too much time in those elite circles to be impressed anymore. What was even more special was that though... There were thousands of people in that congregation, all who, who, who vied for his attention. And I was just a, a, a student. He knew my name. And he sought out conversations with me. Honestly, it felt like I was one of the disciples who had been chosen by Jesus himself. He was smart and, and smooth and attractive. He was our assurance. When, when people sneered that Christians were socially or intellectually inferior, and, and he was deeply spiritual. He literally wrote best-selling books about ordering your private world and the life God blesses. In those early days, I didn't really follow Jesus. I didn't even know what that meant. I followed our rock star pastor. He was who I wanted to be. So you can imagine how it felt a few years later when it was revealed that he'd been having an ongoing affair. I remember right where I was when I first heard that news. I remember straining to breathe. I was on a retreat that weekend, and so I just I wandered off into the woods by myself, reeling from the the disillusionment and, and, and betrayal. His 
doctrine was orthodox. His preaching was powerful. He'd memorized hundreds of Bible passages. He was the pastor other pastors went to for advice. He seemed like the model of Christian maturity, but no one knew what was going on on the inside. Where his private world, including his emotions and relationships, were awash in, in anger and insecurity and entitlement and deception. You know, spiritually, I stayed lost in that wilderness long after that retreat ended. Thank God I eventually found my way out. But many people close to me never made it back from that wilderness. They, his hypocrisy had just been too devastating for them to ever trust God again. And that scared me. 25 years ago, I vowed that I would never betray my wife, or my congregation, or my Lord the way that my pastor had. I knew I was a sinner like everybody else, but I vowed never, let there, never to let there be a gap between what was real on the inside and what I present on the outside. That seemed like an obvious and easy commitment back then. But now, as the pastor of my own church, I see how much easier it is to seem spiritual than to actually be spiritual. To actually let God's Spirit do His wrenching, cleansing, healing work in my life. It's easier to talk about Christianity than to actually follow Christ. Repentance is no fun. Honesty is hard work. Change is painful. And I see this same study, the same dynamic in my study almost every week when I'm meeting with some of our most devoted church members. People who've been Christians for years, volunteering to lead ministries and, and lead Bible studies and attending seminary even, who appear so spiritually mature and yet have gaping holes in their growth, places in their past or their relationships, finances, self-image, or integrity that God hasn't been given access to. Places where fear selfishness, still govern in secret. It's the person you refuse to forgive. The, the sin that you think is unforgivable in others or unavoidable for yourself. It's the demand you can't give up. The wound that, that won't heal. The, the critical voice from your past that you keep hearing in your head. It's the sacrifice you refuse to make. That nagging temptation that won't let go. The, the insecurity that no d- degree or achievement can erase. The, the compulsive behavior. That hot button that can arouse your rage or tears. There is so much anxiety and insecurity masquerading as spirituality. It shouldn't be this way. 
Right? We were designed to love God and love others. We were also designed to receive love from God and others. But many of us aren't able to do what we were designed to do because something's in the way that prevents us from extending or experiencing real love and forgiveness. Many of us have old wounds or destructive patterns that have never been treated. Many of us have found ways to conceal our secret sins so that Jesus is never given the chance to heal us. We may look happy and holy on the outside, but on the inside, we're full of anger and pain. I see this in so many marriages where people are unable to sacrificially love the one person they covenanted to. I hear this when, when people talk about their parents or their finances. And when we're talking, I, I hear it in, in, in the way that the, the pitch of your voice rises or your emotions get aroused when, when you can't do the thing that you truly want to do. I see this in your workaholism or even in your incessant serving that some people do, trying to appease an unhappy God, or, or, or run from the dark feelings that overtake them whenever they slow down. Is that you? It's some of you. you know, so many of you are so successful in you know, one way or another, and you've learned how to appear successful. How to present yourself in, in ways that will please or, or impress. You've learned how to fake it. The danger is that we become fake. Spiritually, that means we come to church and we sing the songs and we serve in ministry, but we don't let God be real in our lives. We aren't honest about our weaknesses. Some of us think we're successful if we could just convince others that we're spiritually mature. I know how to do that too well. So my greatest fear in ministry is becoming someone who appears holy on the outside while letting my insides become spiritually cold, becoming like my previous pastor, becoming an actor. You know the Greek word for actor is upokrite. Hypocrite. That's what it means. In order to prevent that, I need to be healed. I, I, I need to be healed continually by, by the, the Spirit of God who lives in me. But I want to start this series by admitting I'm not fully there right now. The goal of this series is to help you experience God healing parts of yourselves that you've learned to keep hidden. To expose the, the spiritual seeming techniques that we use to avoid Jesus and his transforming power. So we'll be finally free at the end of all this. We hope to, to give and receive love with God and with each other. 
Over the next eight weeks, through sermons and daily devotionals and small groups, you're going to explore ways to do that. But we need to begin by recognizing the reality of the problem, which is as old as the Bible itself. We see it in the Bible's very first pages when Adam and Eve hid from God and one another, not wanting their shame to be seen and refusing to confess their disobedience. You see it in the religious leaders in Jesus' day called Pharisees, whom he accused of being whitewashed tombs, trying to look pretty on the outside, while the inside is dead and rotting. And we see it in Saul, in the passage that we read earlier from 1 Samuel 15. Now, to appreciate this this story, you need to know that Saul was appointed, uh, anointed by God as the first king of Israel. He'd seen God work, and he'd experienced God's blessings, and yet he ended up failing tragically because his private life, including his emotions and spiritual life, were out of order. He had some hidden sins that he refused to let go of. He wanted to appear spiritual more than he really wanted to be spiritual. Well, in this story, God's using Israel's army to overturn a particularly evil and unrepentant nation and put an end to their perpetual injustice. All this has a larger context, which I don't have space to address adequately this morning. But today, we're justifiably alarmed by God's command to eliminate another nation, and we should be. So it's good if you have some questions about the context, but I don't want to let that distract us from the valuable example of Saul's spiritual sickness. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 3, the Lord specifically commanded that the Amalekites and everything that belongs to them must be destroyed. The Israelites were not to profit from this at all. So no taking plunder or gold or livestock. Everything had to be destroyed. So Saul attacked, as instructed, and he obliterated the Amalekites. Mostly. Verse 9, But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, verse 11, I regret that I've made Saul king. Because he's turned away from me and he hasn't carried out my instructions. Saul blew it. His greed got the best of him. Now, I'll bet he thought he was doing everything right. I mean, why kill King Agag? He could be a useful political tool. And, And why waste perfectly good sheep and cattle? That's just not good stewardship. I mean, surely God wouldn't want that. Over the years as a pastor, I've heard so many spiritual sounding justifications like that. People telling me why they should sleep with their boyfriend or, or, or leave their spouse or sell out their convictions to take a more lucrative job that they're sure God wants them to have. They, they find a clever way to make it seem like they're being obedient after all, even while directly disobeying what God said. And we may convince Everyone, including ourselves. But every time we do that, something inside us dies. And and God's Spirit is squeezed out of one more area of our lives. 
And that's what Saul was doing. He deluded himself that, that he was doing the right thing. And he felt like some kind of spiritual hero. So when the prophet Samuel arrived, Saul announced proudly, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel saw right through his facade. What then is this bleeding of sheep that I hear or in my ears? What, what's, what's this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, refusing to take responsibility. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. To sacrifice. You see, do you see how he makes disobedience and greed seem so holy? Exasperated, Samuel asked, Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. See, there he goes again, excusing his failure to put the blame by putting the blame on the soldiers. Saul puts on a pretty good spiritual show. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Self-righteous Saul convinced himself that he was faithful and that God was totally on his side. When in fact, he was further from God than ever. We all do that sometimes. We sin and, and worse, we, we convince of ourselves of our own virtue at the very moments we're most at fault. We blame others. I mean, I would love to love and, and serve and, and forgive and live like Jesus, but my, my roommate is impossible. My boss made me do it. No one could love someone like that. We have so many excuses for why we won't obey God's commands when we don't want to. That's what Saul did. But now he's been caught. So this is his chance to repent and receive forgiveness. And he seems to do just that. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now, I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Saul admits he's a people pleaser and that he blew it. It sounds so humble on the surface, but soon Saul's real motive is revealed. Verse 30, Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. You see, Saul wanted to make sure that no one knew about his secret sin. So he asked Samuel to honor him before the people so that they'd still see Saul as a spiritual leader. He didn't really want repentance. He didn't really want transformation. He really didn't want forgiveness. He wanted to be liked and respected. And he wanted Samuel to help him fake it. He wanted to look good on the outside, even while his inside was another story. 
My pastor did that. I do that. We can all be so tempted to do that. Almost 20 years ago, the pastor of a thriving megachurch in New York City started to notice how spiritually shallow many of his parishioners were. They memorized Bible verses, and they attended Bible studies, and they held prayer meetings, but they were immature in their ability to deal with conflict or disappointment or pain. And then he noticed it in his pastoral staff, I mean, seminary graduates who, who could preach powerfully and yet simultaneously were manipulative and, and deceptive. And only then did he recognize all this in himself. He'd been acting for years, being on his best behavior in public while bottling up all his rage and ignoring his emotions, living to please people and meet expectations. He preached about peace and joy, but he was miserable. He preached about love, but he recognized he didn't know how to love at all. After a decade of exploration and growth, he was changed, and he came to the conviction that when spirituality is not emotionally healthy, then we won't experience the real transformation that's possible. Knowing the Greek word for love is not the same thing as actually loving. Memorizing Bible verses about forgiveness is not the same as actually forgiving. In the end, emotionally, our emotional maturity determines how deeply our spirituality can penetrate. We see this in Saul. He knew God's law thoroughly, and he, he seemed so successful to, to everyone around him. He'd been appointed king of Israel. And, and he knew all of the the things that God wanted for him, but beneath the surface, his emotional and spiritual life were in disarray. We see at least three examples of that in his life. The first thing Saul does as an emotionally unhealthy person is say no to reflection and self-awareness. So he doesn't even realize how controlled he is by his need for approval from other people. So often when people come to me because they feel distant from God, they wonder, you know, where God is? Why does he show up when I pray? Maybe you feel that sometimes. And those are legitimate questions, but it takes two parties to be in a relationship. And my experience is that more often it's we who don't really show up when we pray. We don't know ourselves enough to have an honest conversation with God. Many of us have kept ourselves busy in order to avoid really listening to our own hearts so we don't recognize our deepest needs or know our true motives. Closely related to this is the second problem. Saul doesn't cultivate a real relationship with God. He's satisfied with religious rituals and impressive sacrifices that let him feel faithful to God without having to really encounter God at all. But Samuel responds, verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In Hebrew, the word, the word translated here, obey, primarily means to listen. One of my pastor friends told me, 
about the time that he was leading a Bible study, and he noticed that one of the guys sitting next to him kept writing names in the margin of his Bible as they're kind of going through the passage. And he just kept noticing, dude, that's kind of a weird thing. Like, a lot of times people write notes and stuff, but just name, that name, that name. And so finally, after this has gone on for a while, he stopped the study. He said, what are you... What is he doing? What is that about? And the guy said, oh, yeah, I'm writing the name of the the person I know who needs to hear that verse. Notably, his name was never there. You know, it's always easier not to listen. Often when people go out to lunch after church, the the opening question is, so, what did you think of the sermon? I, I did that so often in college, analyzing the structure or the rhetorical technique of the speaker. And that's a way to listen without listening at all. We protect our own hearts, our secret sins, so we never have to repent or, or change or grow. I and mean, what a different thing it is to ask, what was God saying to me in that sermon? See, now we're listening. And there are other ways not to listen. You know, religion can push us out of our self-centeredness to serve God and others, or going through the motions of religion can be ways that we assure ourselves of our own virtue while avoiding a real relationship with God. Friends, it doesn't matter how much you serve or how high you raise your hands during worship or how much money you give or how many sacrifices you make if you use those as alternatives to knowing God. See, Saul, Saul thought that he could placate God with some great sacrifice, but God wants you more than any of your stuff, and he gave you all that stuff in the first place, and he can make as much more of it as he wants. What he wants, above all, is you, not just your stuff, not just your time, not just your service, not just your money, not just your Sunday. He wants you. Sacrifice can be beautiful, but to listen is better than sacrifice. But many of us find that hard to do. Many of us find it scary. And maybe we're afraid that we're, we're going to disappoint. We'll be a disappointment. We'll be inadequate. Many of us find it easier to keep moving fast and, and, and throw God a bone to just keep him, him satisfied at a distance. My dream over the next two months is that you're going to dare doing something different. Being real with God and real with one another. Offering yourselves. A third symptom of Saul's emotional immaturity is his refusal to be broken through setbacks and difficulties. You know, all of us experience setbacks and difficulties many times in life. It's the way that God confronts and heals and changes us. But again and again, through Saul's life, we see that instead of learning through pain, he just becomes increasingly headstrong and determined to do it his way. Yeah, I see so many marriages in which pain doesn't propel the partners to humbly ask, 
how they could love better, but makes them increasingly bitter and self-centered, more self-assured than ever that they're doing everything right. Even when Saul was caught in sin, he refused to acknowledge it and truly grow. Instead, he tried to cover it up and keep moving. It was then that God knew that Saul could not continue being king. Some of you are like Saul in that way. Others of you are the opposite. You're over-reflecting, reflective and self-doubting. You're you're paralyzed by constant self-criticism or or fear of what others might think, which makes it difficult to receive or extend real love. You're afraid to speak the truth. You're afraid to to deal with conflict. You're uh, afraid to to be who God created you to be because you feel perpetually unworthy and bound by shame. I remember one woman in college who never spoke to me. Like we were in the same kind of group of friends. She literally wouldn't look me in the eye. She wouldn't speak to me. And, and, you know, I was such a new Christian then. I just, I, I kind of took it personally. She was constantly reading her Bible and she was going to prayer meetings. I just assumed she was just too spiritually advanced to, to interact with a dweeb like me. But later... I discovered that she was so insecure that she was afraid to speak to almost anyone. She read her Bible as an excuse to hide from people. Yes, excuse me, I'm having a quiet time, right? <laughs> We're like with all these other people hanging around, and she's like reading her Bible, and I'm like, man, she is so holy. Little did I know is she is so afraid. I didn't recognize it. She spoke up at prayer meetings because it was the one place she'd learned the right things to say. Other people use prayer meetings to wallow in their anxieties or or to win approval from others or criticize people under the guise of speaking to God. We've all been in that prayer meeting. Emotional unhealth can look so holy. Some of you can see right through Saul's kind of superficial spirituality, but the problem is you've become so jaded and cynical that you wonder if there can be anything real at all. Is emotionally healthy spirituality even possible? You know, when we start to recognize all of this, it can almost sound hopeless. We know better than Saul. Is God going to give up on you like he gave up on Saul? Maybe. But it doesn't have to be that way. See, God saves only one kind of people sinners. And King David was a a sinner every bit as much as Saul was, or any of us are, and yet God calls him a man after my own heart. Huh? What was the difference? I, I could easily argue that David did worse things than Saul did. The difference is that David listened. David repented. David learned from the past. David was in a relationship with God. David was real. David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, David was asking the hard questions and listening. 
Many of the Psalms contain his confessions. David wasn't perfect, but he was honest. David knew both that he was valuable and that he was fallible. So David received God's forgiveness, and David was changed. Proverbs 20 asks, Who can say, I've kept my heart pure, I'm clean and without sin? You know who'd say that? Saul. But not David. And not me. I hope not us. If we're going to be truly healed and be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, and all the other fruit listed in Galatians 5, then then we need to, to give up the act, trying to convince people or ourselves that we have it all together. We need to be real. I honestly believe that's what can make a church an exceptional place. If in this one place, with this one group of people, I, I know we're tempted to fake it in so many of the places where we're pressured to fake it. But if here, we can experiment with the possibility of being real. And, and then have this surprising discovery, even in the moment that we let some of our darkness show, of being loved, being valued, being forgiven. Then we can start to rewrite some of those tapes that a lot of us got from our earliest days, from our parents, from our our world, from our, our schools. We can start to rewrite those messages about who we are and what makes us valuable. That's what can make a church an exceptional place and can make us different people. Over the next eight weeks, you're going to explore some of the symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality so that you can recognize the places that some of you are stuck. And that may sound like a series full of bad news, but it's actually good news. See, we don't need to deny our sins or shortcomings because God loves us. He loves sinners. Jesus came to save people like us. One of the the blessings of being a pastor at the same church for so long, is that I, I've seen that happen a million times. People who have been unsafe and hot-headed becoming compassionate and humble. People who are insecure and anxious becoming confident and full of life. People learning to extend forgiveness and to accept it. People learning to love marriages transformed, families reunited, and long-standing sins long since defeated. Some people stay stuck for years while seeming very spiritual and even self-righteous. And yet I've seen even more people change in amazing ways. So now I know never to give up on anyone. Not even me. God isn't done yet. But we need to begin by admitting that in in certain areas, we're more like Saul, keeping up appearances, than like David. We need to confess that we need God's forgiveness and healing power. So before we receive communion together, 
I'd like to take a, a few moments of quiet, maybe a little longer than you're used to. I, mean, I, I know we're so accustomed to running fast and, 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 and keeping ahead of our, our anxious thoughts. Maybe that's why we run so fast. But I, I want to take a few moments now just to be real. Take stock of where we really are and confess that honestly to God. As we're sitting there in silence, as you're praying, are there places where you're just faking it? Ask, are there parts of your life that you haven't given God authority over? Are there places where you need His forgiveness and salvation? We're going to take some time now to confess those quietly before God, and then after a few moments, I'm going to invite us to confess together. I invite you just to take some time in silence and pray now. Friends, I invite you to pray with me the confession that's on the screen. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We have hurt others we were called to love. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore us to the joy of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My friends, hear this absolution from God's word in Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he, remo- as he removed our transgressions from us. This is the word of the Lord.